Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you read the line, my ambition is not only to be an emperor, but author of a whole world. And if I told you it was written in 1666, who would you imagine wrote it? Shah Jahan, Charles II, Louis XIV, Samuel Pepys. I imagine you'd think it had been written by a powerful man, setting down his ideas about his reign, adventures, travels and travails. But I'm leading the jury, because I misquoted it. The actual line is, my ambition is not only to be an empress, but authoress of a whole world. What if I told you it was not a powerful person who said this, but an Englishwoman who wrote more than 20 plays and books, publishing them in her own name. A woman who did become, as today's guest notes, authoress of a new world and a whole new genre. Would you be surprised? What kind of woman would you imagine her to be? The person I want you to imagine is Margaret Cavendish, born Margaret Lucas in 1623, who became one of the most prolific female writers of the 17th century. She wrote on topics typically untouched by women at the time, gender, natural science, philosophy, poetry, and even science fiction. But being a female pioneer, Margaret courted controversy and has continued to do so since her death, her brilliance marred by accusations of madness. To recover the life of this amazing woman, I'm very pleased to welcome a rising star. Francesca Peacock is author of Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish. She is a writer and journalist, writing for publications including The Telegraph, The Times, The TLS, Spectator, FT and Prospect. Pure Wit is her first book. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors. So lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I've been wanting to do something on Margaret Cavendish since we founded this podcast. And so I perhaps know the answer to this question, but I want your take on it. When did you first come across her and what convinced you that you needed to write a biography of her? Yeah, so it's such a good question. And I was very interested in a group of women who were writing a bit later than her, so in the very early 18th century, Mary Astle and Anne Finch, the Countess of Winchelsea, and this growth of female intellectual development and female interest in philosophy in particular. And I was reading more, and then somebody told me I should really read quite a bit of Margaret Cavendish. So I did, and then I became more and more interested in her, and then read more and more about her life and thought it just sounded absolutely amazing. And then there's a brilliant book by Katie Whitaker called Mad Madge, 
which came out in 2003 now, so quite a long time ago. And I read that and absolutely loved it. And I thought that the time was right to maybe try and bring her to a slightly wider audience. People outside of academia hadn't necessarily heard of her, although there was a brilliant novel which fictionalised her life called Margaret the First, which was published not too long ago. But I thought the time was hopefully right to try and bring more attention to her. And it is her 400th anniversary this year. So once we realised that, it seemed key to try and get her out there. Could you give us a bit of a sense of her background and her early life, including how she learned to read and write, her education at a time when actually only a small, although albeit growing number of women were able to do so at this time? Yeah, definitely. So she's born in 1623 in Colchester, St John's Abbey, which was a kind of country house on the site of former monastic land. So it had originally been an abbey, but they built a house there. Sadly, doesn't exist anymore. There is still a gatehouse, but that's all that's there. And she's born as the last daughter, the last child to parents who were not aristocratic, but they were very wealthy. So they come by money through political appointments, being quite close to the crown, which is obviously how they got the former monastic land. And she's the last child so all of her siblings are grown up they're either married or she had three older brothers and she learns to read and write because there are a lot of books around her but she didn't have any formal education she writes in her autobiography that she got taught how to sew to dance very classic education for women of the period and she comes at this point where very aristocratic women were often incredibly highly literate, very educated women during the Renaissance. And then there's a growth of women's education towards the end of Margaret's life, really. Schools for women who could afford it start being set up and it becomes a greater thing as we go further into the 18th century. But she's at this period where it was really between two times and she wasn't necessarily formally educated at all and her sisters didn't necessarily have an education either but she learned to read through the amount of books that were available to her and she describes taking herself off to write in her baby books as a child which really sadly we don't have anymore because I would love to read them and she also was able to learn through asking her older brothers things so it's kind of an education of like shreds and patches that she puts together and as she goes on in her life she really rails against this lack of education she had and it becomes quite a key part of her relationship with her husband. Yeah, so later life she talks about her intelligence not being learned but natural. I wonder though if there's a benefit to that claim as well. Yes, definitely. So it's one of the things she writes in the preface to a couple of her very early books. And it's almost a way of her deflecting criticism because she claims that her intelligence is not kind of book intelligence, it's very natural, which kind of removes the way that people could say she doesn't know enough, she's uneducated. And it ties into as well to her kind of theory of the world. We can talk about this later, but she is very involved in this part of like natural philosophy and pre-Newtonian science where it's the age of the educated amateur, it's up for grabs, anyone can say and think what they want to. And she's always later on in her life butting up against men who have a more scientific education than her, but still making the claim for her arguments and her theories about the world to be believed. So it very much fits into that as well. Can you tell us what she did during the English Civil War and how far you think her actions were inspired by the Queen Henrietta Maria, to whom she became a lady in waiting? Yeah, definitely. So she's in 1623, she's born. And then by the time she's in her late teens, her family house in Colchester is stormed by a group of parliamentarian forces, mobs from the surrounding villages and towns. And this is right at the beginning of the English Civil War. And her older brothers, they will fight for the royalist side. And at one point, her family house is stormed and her mother and perhaps Margaret herself, although the sources are a bit unclear on this, it could be another one of her sisters, are paraded through Colchester and taken to the family jail. 
pretty soon after that, the family then moved to London, we think. And then from there, Margaret, at the age of 20, makes the journey from London to Oxford to be a lady-in-waiting for Henrietta Maria. Now, the court had moved from London to Oxford, obviously when things have got a bit hot and a bit spicy in London, as Charles I is there and all of Oxford is converted into the new court. Henrietta Maria, at this point, has spent a lot of the early part of the Civil War organising military admin and stuff and sorting out the shipment of arms from Europe and they'd landed in the north of England. So she's known in propaganda and in the newspapers, which were published weekly on both sides of the conflict, for being a very forceful military woman. And Margaret obviously had an interest in that and would have read these papers and phrases her decision to go be a lady-in-waiting in terms of like duty towards the Queen, who didn't have as many ladies-in-waiting as she normally had. And it's a quite a bold decision. She did have to travel across the country during a war and her brothers were fighting the Royalist Army, so maybe that's a part of the same desire to be involved. And also perhaps a part of the desire to be close to a woman who was a kind of vision of female power. Later on in her life, she writes a play called Bell and Campo, which is about a group of women fighting in what is basically basically the English Civil War, and they end up winning a battle for the male soldiers who then have to revere them as goddesses. Yes, we'll definitely come back to that. So in the midst of this, in 1645, while serving Henrietta Maria, she met her future husband, William Cavendish, the first Duke of Newcastle. She was 22 and he was 52. And that doesn't alarm me terribly much because I don't think that age gaps are quite as important as people think they are. I've got a lot lots of friends who are 30 years older than me and quite brilliant and kindred spirits. You say that the strength of their love was significant, but you also say it was a difficult love story. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so it's kind of famed as a very beautiful love story. So a lot of the stuff that's written about them later in the Victorian period in particular and in the early 20th century always stresses their love for them. That's partly because one of the few texts which did come down to us and was always read after Margaret Cavendish died was her biography of her husband rather than her writing about her own life or her own poems and plays. But it's always talked about as this amazing love story. And it is in a way. So the court had gone into exile in France. They'd had a very dangerous journey to get over there. They turn up in Paris Saint-Germain in an exiled court. Margaret's just had dysentery. Everything's going really badly for her. And she doesn't speak any French. She's very shy, very lonely. And one day a man turns up looking incredibly flamboyant with very expensive horses that he then just gives to the queen in a display of extreme wealth. Turns out that actually wasn't, he wasn't very wealthy at the time. And it was a display in order to try and get more credit from his creditors. And she falls in love with this man, partly because he's so flamboyant. They then start writing love letters to each other. And these all still exist in the British Library and they're absolutely amazing. Margaret has incredibly chaotic handwriting. She's writing from such a position of passion. She sends letters being like, do you have a plot against my health because you wrote to me so early, I could not get any sleep. Or you write to me so much and I don't know what to do with myself. So there's obviously very strong feelings of love there. And he writes her, I think it's 72 poems, which is at a rate of more than one every two days. So I think that might be my barrier in relationships now. That's the bar. And it's gorgeous. And his love poetry is not particularly brilliant poetry. I think it's if you'd read a lot of John Donne when you were younger and thought you could do the same, but didn't quite have the same skills, it might be what you'd come out with. But it's still very sweet. I mean, that's quite an achievement, really, even trying to be like John Donne. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So then they have this relationship. And by the end of their courtship, there are rumours they're already married, rumours they got married in secret. They have to ask the permission of the Queen, obviously, because Margaret is a lady in waiting. And they end up kind of annoying the Queen, but getting married anyway. 
And then they live in Antwerp together. And they have this relationship, which is incredibly loving. So he, along with his brother, Charles Cavendish, set up an academy to teach Margaret things so that we have a receipt for Charles buying Margaret a scale model of the solar system in order to be able to teach her things like that, which is gorgeous. And she writes, her very early writing is always about what her husband's taught her, but still demonstrating her own beliefs and opinions. So that's the kind of part of the relationship which is often put on a pedestal. She's famed for being very wifely, very dutiful, especially in the Victorian period. That's how people talk about her because she writes her husband's biography. But it's much more complex than that because as their relationship goes on and Margaret becomes more and more comfortable in her own opinions, she writes things which disagree with her husband and he still massively supports her, sends out copies of her books. The main fault line in their relationship is probably the fact that they didn't have any children. And in her autobiography, Margaret writes that this man married me. I think it's because he wanted to have fruitful heirs or something. So he had two sons and three daughters. But in the Civil War, having two sons did not look as safe as it might have done just before the wars had broken out. And they don't have any children. And she writes quite a tragic line where she says, despite that, he never loved me any the less. The implication being that was a possibility. And she takes a lot of medication for infertility, none of which works. And it could, of course, be an infertility on her husband's side as well. And so that causes a fault line. And later on in their life, there are rumours of affairs. And there are some poems that William Cavendish wrote, which suggest that perhaps he felt Margaret had betrayed him somehow. So it's definitely more complex than it has perhaps been believed previously, I would say. Yes. So on the one hand, I'm very envious of you having that kind of exchange of letters because a century earlier, the sort of stuff I work on, it's unusual to have that degree of passion revealed through these kind of epistles. But on the other hand, I really take your point about it being more complex. And I suppose we also need to take into account that it might at the time have been perceived as a betrayal, the childlessness. But there's also grief. It's just a grief between them if they wanted to have children. Entirely, yeah. And I think she was very ill. She was a woman whose medical history is incredibly well chronicled. I mean, amazing resources still up in the Nottingham special collections up there. And you just have these long lists of things she was injecting herself with or her purges and her bile and everything. So there was a lot of illness, I think, on both sides. Both of them were a bit hypochondriacs. And I think there is grief there. The letters he writes, which suggest that he felt betrayed by her come after she had returned to London in 1651. They were still in exile and William Cavendish was a royalist commander. He had fought on the royalist side, which meant he was designated a delinquent, which meant that his assets had been seized. As his dependent, Margaret could make a petition to the court to claim for a part of his assets to live off. So she travels to London in order to try and get some of that money because they're very, very broke. And she fails because they tell her that she married him knowing he was a delinquent. But while she's over there, she's with his brother, Charles Cavendish. And William writes these poems, which have brilliant lines saying that servants had turned spies and had told him things or that she had turned her cheek. So it's very hard to read biography into poetry. And you don't want to say that you have done because (laughs) that's an incredibly flawed approach. But it's very hard to pinpoint what exactly had happened, if it was anything concrete or if William just felt a kind of sense of emotional distance or betrayal. I do think it is more difficult than a lot of other biographers have said, but there is so much passion in there. One of the very early letters she writes, the text in the British Library, the original letter, is still marred. You can see where she's cried and crossed things out. And she writes this letter telling William how depressed she is about the fact they're in exile. And this is before they got married. She says, I look upon the world as if it had drunk opium, all the dissolutions and everything. And so they're already having a relationship which was very emotional and very intimate on one level. So William helps her education and we see her starting to produce work. And although the 
were books, of course, written by women at this time. They were typically anonymised and on safe subjects like advice to mothers. Margaret is one of the first to publish in her own name, though Catherine Parr's dying a century before, but Margaret's writing about things that are unwomanly, in inverted commas. Her inaugural book, Poems and Fancies of 1653, is exploring this dizzying array of topics and atoms and natural philosophy and the destruction of the Civil War and hunting and all sorts of other things. So thinking about this first publication, what do you think compelled her to make this bold, brave leap? Definitely. It's such an interesting question. So prior to 1653, of course, women had written and published. There'd been psalm translation, as you said, Catherine Parr was a big part of that. And Mary Sidney, Countess of Pembroke, Philip Sidney's sister, had done psalm translation. And then those had been circulated in manuscript, which doesn't necessarily have to be thought of as lesser than publication, because it's still a form of information dissemination and did reach huge audiences. But prior to Margaret, women who had written and then print published on subjects other than religious devotion or advice to mothers, or medical tracts have been few and far between. So we have Amelia Lanya, who writes still religious works, and she writes like a rewriting of the story of Eve and Adam, which is absolutely brilliant. And there's Lady Mary Roth, who writes a prose romance, kind of a Roman clay, about her relationships in London at that time. And she ends up having to rescind that from publication because people attack her so much for it. But Margaret Cavendish travels to London in 1651 to try and get money from her husband's estates. While she's over in London, she had been writing previously in Antwerp as her education had progressed. And she's in London and there's a tantalising chance that she met Catherine Phillips through a group of royalist people in London at the time. He was obviously a poet whose work was circulated in manuscript. And there's a tantalising possibility that that was what kind of spurred her to writing poetry. And she had been reading a lot about atomism, which is this theory of like Epicurean atomism, which believes that everything in the world can be boiled down to atoms that move randomly and move of their own accord. So it's a theory which invites a lot of atheistic complications and it's quite difficult for a lot of people in the period to expand wholly without feeling quite conflicted about what it implies. And Margaret comes out with this book of poems with her name on the title piece right there, which is about atoms. It's about the Civil War. It's about her family life. She writes poems for her mother. She writes a funeral poem for her royalist soldier brother who had died in a very famous execution at Colchester. She writes poems about her own life and she writes poems about her marriage. And these will get published under one volume, which is absolutely amazing. If we think firstly about the genres in that and why did she do it is such a good question because upon its publication, letters were already being written, which, you know, called her mad, suggested she should be in Bedlam. And there is the chance that she wrote it because she needed the money. She turns up in London incredibly broke. Her brother-in-law, Charles Cavendish, had to pawn his watch so that they could get from the port up to London. And they have no money. They fail to get any money off the parliamentarians who've seized their estates. Charles manages to get some, but not that much. And Afra Ben is always famed as the first female professional writer, as Virginia Woolf said, the first woman to live by her pen. And I really, really wanted to explore the possibility that it was Margaret. And then history doesn't work like that, because often you can't find the one piece of evidence that you'd just love to find. And so there is no evidence that she was paid for her book. So publication didn't work then like it does now, where authors are paid by publishers 
in order to publish their work. So you could actually pay for your book to be published. You could pay the printing costs yourself. We know that happened for some of her later works because she arranged the inclusion of like elaborate frontispieces and elaborate bindings, which wouldn't have happened unless she was paying for them. And we know that her husband's works were printed on that basis as well. They were paid for. But there is no evidence for her first couple of works. So there is the chance that she did published because she needed the money and it was a form of labour. If it wasn't that, and there is also, we have to admit, that is very hard to prove and we'll probably never be able to work it out unless something turns up in an archive somewhere, then it was a degree of boldness. It was a degree of wanting to be seen on a stage. She was living in exile, living quite an isolated world where she was just reading and writing. Although it's easy to overstress how isolated it was. Her husband, circle in exile did include René Descartes and Thomas Hobbes. So it's quite an intellectual circle. But it was a desire to make her work public, either for money or just for that. And both are incredibly bold. As she continued to write and publish, she became part of a wave, you've already given a nod to, a wave of women's writing and education and thinking. Could you outline this movement for us and whether it was as important for Margaret's success as her husband's connections and support and sometimes money? Yeah, definitely. I think really good question. You can't really underemphasize how important her husband's connections were, definitely. But yes, so Margaret is publishing from 1653 until her death in 1673. And then there are a couple of posthumous editions of her works. It's also a posthumous collection of poems and letters written to her. But she is part of this wave. So Catherine Phillips very famously writes poems during the Protectorate and during the Civil War, which are published, but then she claims were published without her permission, which was a very typical response of women who had been published. In order to preserve your modesty, you could say that it happened without you wanting it to. But of course, Margaret is quite soon followed by Afra Ben, who is the first female professional author and playwright, who, if we think that the response Margaret gets is bad, she's called Mad Madge, I think at one point, an illustrious whore. Quite nothing compared to what Afra Ben gets, at which point people accuse her, because she is a playwright, of selling her wares on the stage, an obvious allusion to being a prostitute, or one other poet says that she just needs a pimp to set her off. This is all part of it, and then it quite soon goes into the early 18th century, women writing very early novels, and then all of that, like Eliza Hayward, Delarivea Manley. So pretty soon, publication becomes something which is, if not commonplace for women, then much more accepted. But Margaret's at this point where people would often write in manuscript. So just because women weren't publishing for public view does not mean that women's writing wasn't everywhere. It existed absolutely everywhere. So you can find brilliant books of prayers women wrote. And, you know, writing your own prayers is almost like a form of writing your own poetry. So writing prayers about their children, writing prayers about their pregnancies and really interesting stuff, which just wasn't published but was read by family members at the time. I think it's a bit disingenuous to say that women weren't writing for publication just because they were writing for different means and stuff. But yes, Margaret's work, you know, we have so many copies that were donated to libraries in Oxford and Cambridge, for example, probably just because of her husband's connections and his money. And they did have this relationship where he was incredibly supportive of her. So after they failed to have any children, he recasts her books as their children and calls them her newborn fancies, which I think is a lovely line and a lovely sentiment. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. We've mentioned Bell and Campo already, published in 1662, and also in that year, there's orations of diverse sorts. And in these works, she explores ideas which have been since called feminist. Do you think we should apply this label, or do you think that other aspects of her work and life make it ill-fitting? Yeah, so this is something I really came up against when planning and researching and writing the book. And I had a lot of conversations with myself about whether or not I should use the term. So I initially thought maybe I could use the term proto-feminist because what are her works if not considering women as a separate political class and thinking about women as a separate group to men who have different issues and are quite fundamentally oppressed. One of the chapter titles for my chapter on feminism is called We Women Are Miserable, which comes from one of her plays about like female separatist utopias where women will be very separate from men, precisely because of the amount of just treatment, which was unfair. So Margaret's very perceptive about this. She writes about how marriage is continually a worse deal for women than it is for men. She writes about how women are beaten, about how pregnancy for women is horrible and horrifying and can kill you. So she's always considering women as a separate group to men, which is obviously a central tenet of how we think about feminism and how you think about women's rights. And later on, so Mary Astle, who comes a bit after Margaret Cambridge, writes a serious proposal to the ladies all about retreating from life in order for women to focus on their own intellectual development. After that, we go into the 18th century, where obviously we have Mary Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of women. The more I thought about it, the more you think that Margaret Cavendish is clearly thinking about women's rights, even if she wouldn't have used those words exactly, but she very nearly does, very clearly thinking about how women are treated in society. And to call her a proto-feminist, I felt put her kind of prior to what we would now call feminism in a way which felt a bit patronising, just because her ideas are different and because she comes from a different time period. It felt wrong to say that she was a proto-feminist because it puts all of feminism kind of on a timeline where if you come at the wrong point, you can be called a completely different thing. We could all be proto-feminists in 70 years, was my thinking. So I ended up calling her a feminist, but in a heavily caveated manner. And I do think that she does think about women in a way which is feminist. She does consider them 
as having separate issues and separate concerns to men, which is radical in and of itself in the period. I really enjoy your thinking on that and the way you've talked through and thought through those terms. We have her publishing a few years later a couple of pieces that attacked the work of some of the members of the Royal Society. And again, we need to start thinking about definitions, I suppose. So the works that she published were observations on experimental philosophy and the blazing world, as you know. So she was invited to be the first woman to go to one of the Royal Society meetings. And here, I suppose, we could say that we see her operating as a scientist. I'm interested to see what you think. Again, the term not necessarily in use then. What were her criticisms of these Royal Society members and their basis? And how did the meeting go? Yeah, so the Royal Society is founded in 1660. It's the home of like male restoration scientific endeavour. It's one of the restoration projects. And these men there were kind of dealing with Francis Bacon, so Baconian science, the idea that science was something rational, which could be delineated along very clear grounds. And as part of that would be written in very clear manners where science would be laid out as separate to, for example, fiction, plays or poetry. And they also, as part of this, were engaged in kind of experimental science, which now sounds exactly how we think science is. Science, you experiment, you see the results, and from that you take whatever you want to reason from that, but you take the facts from the experiments. And that sounds completely normal and rational and incredibly sensible to us. But to many people in the 17th century, it felt a bit bizarre. So Margaret Cavendish was a royalist. And for her, the idea that everything could be known from pure reason and experiments, for example, microscopes, very new technology in this period. So we have Robert Hooke's Micrographia, which is a brilliant book with amazing etchings done by looking for the first time through a microscope. And this is all absolutely radical. I don't think we can really understand just how radical it was to see these things. People didn't believe, for example, that they actually were the product of what was seen through a microscope. But this is all coming at a time where the idea was that reason was paramount and reason could tell you everything. So The idea was that you could look through a microscope and you would know everything about the universe. There was nothing beyond human thought anymore. We were entering a new age. To Margaret Cavendish, as a royalist, that sounded dangerously like the kind of overarching Puritan beliefs of the reformers who she'd been fighting against during the civil wars. So her reaction is as political as it is reason science. And she starts to say that reason cannot teach us everything. It sounds ridiculous now, and I think we have to admit that, but she's not alone in this. She's not alone in trying to search for other things. And she ends up with this kind of qualified belief in experiments and everything. One of her earliest biographers says that she didn't do any experiments, which is a complete lie. We have the letters and all of the things in archives to prove that she actually was engaged in experimental science. But she then writes this thing called Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy, where she argues against the overuse and reliance of microscopes and says that they can distort the truth. And it does sound ridiculous, but her idea was that there are things beyond human conception and there are always going to be things which could distort your knowledge and you cannot just rely on that. And then she writes The Blazing World, which comes out initially appended to the back of Observations Upon experimental philosophy and that is the first work of science fiction really it is a proto novel proto prose romance which explores what happens when a woman goes into a new world and sets herself up as the empress there and is director of all of these scientists who are anthropomorphic lice men mouse men bear men and wolf men who work as scientists under her and explore the world for her and tell her her findings 
And in it, she satirizes the men of the Royal Society by who claim they could know everything through microscopes. And in this alternate reality, which she explores, which reflects Earth for her, it becomes very clear that they are in the wrong and that she is in the right. So it does sound ridiculous. And it's quite hard, I think, for us to take her seriously now. But I think we really have to. She's speaking to the debates of the day. And she does accept experimental science on one level, but she's also very conscious of the fact that she didn't want to be over-reliant on like human knowledge. I don't think it sounds all that ridiculous. Obviously, I believe in scientific experiments and I believe in what you can see down a microscope. But the idea that reason can't tell us everything seems to me perfectly reasonable. I mean, it suggests that there is such a thing as transcendence. And, you know, the more we know, the more we discover we don't know. So actually, perhaps it's not quite that ridiculous after all. You've described why the blazing world is so groundbreaking And maybe in your choice of word about it, you've also described why it led to such fierce criticism. But the criticism really is notable. I mean, even up until the 20th century, that review saying it could be evidence of schizophrenia. Tell me why it provoked such a response. It really did. And it's forgotten now as well as a very early work of science fiction. People never really include it. If they do include an early woman's work of science fiction, it's always Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It produced absolutely wild criticism and still does if people read it today. It's one of the few works of Margaret Cavendish's which is available in mass market paperback, which is lovely because it means that more people can read it. It's a bizarre book. It starts off with a new world. It's the first work of science fiction to imagine a different world, a world alternate to our own. And it is a work of feminist utopianism at heart. It's a world which is run by women. The woman who ends up she gets captured, taken into this new world, becomes the empress. The emperor recedes into the background. And the empress is the key character who directs all of these scientists who are satires of real life men in the royal society. And it produced some of the fiercest criticism, but probably because it comes at a point where Margaret is at her most famous. So in 1667, she goes back to London, having been made a duchess two years previously in 1665. And this is the summer where Samuel Pepys in his diaries describes her being mobbed by crowds and crowds of children as she runs down the street. It's the summer where she goes to the theatre and there's an absolutely bizarre letter which claims that she entered the theatre on a chariot pulled by eight white bulls. It's the summer where she's become more of a magical creature and something who appears in historical sources as being almost like a fairy or an actress in a play rather than a real woman. And I think that is probably what is tied to the criticism against her. She had become larger than life and it happened the summer after she wrote science fiction about an empress who's in a different world. And that takes us into this dichotomy. She describes herself as very shy, but she seems to have wanted fame and she seemed to enjoy causing a stir, not least with her choice of fashions and theatrics when she was in public which some even called insane. And yet she insists that she's melancholic, cripplingly shy. What do you make of her character? Yeah, so it's so hard to pin down. So she describes her childhood in terms of being incredibly shy and incredibly anxious. She describes waiting outside her sister's bedroom whilst her sister is praying to check that she could still hear her breathing. She describes when she later becomes a lady-in-waiting, being too shy to say a single word at court. 
She writes a play called The Presence about her life at court and her character is Lady Bashful, who is a stand-in for herself. And Lady Bashful never says a word on stage (laughs) during the whole play. So she has this image of herself as incredibly shy. And I think she probably was. Later writings about her life in London in 1660s describe her as always preferring to stay at home, despite the fact that she was obviously such a character when she went outside and receiving people at home to discuss philosophy rather than everything else. But at the same time, she was this woman who wore outrageous restoration fashions and did almost cross-dress in a means of drawing attention to herself. We were talking about her visit to the Royal Society. She went to that in a dress with a train so long she had to have attendant ladies to carry it for her and a masculine hat. There's a poem that's written being like she could have been a cavalier, but that she had no beard. So always drawing attention to herself. And I really struggled to know what to make of it because throughout her life, she becomes more than herself. She makes herself into one of her own characters. And she's always writing herself as a character into her own books. So she becomes a fictionalised person, but at the same time is apparently too shy to go outside without her husband or stuff like that. And I don't know if it's two sides of the same coin. I mean, hiding behind a fictionalised version of yourself or if her shyness was a kind of claim to her modesty of the type we had seen when other women had claimed that they hadn't published their works themselves or something. I think that may be a slightly cynical view. I think maybe she was incredibly shy and incredibly anxious, but definitely a very fascinating character. And I was fascinated by your analysis that her wish to be famous was tied up with her view of Christian theology. Can you explain this? Yes, of course. So we were talking a bit about her belief in reason probably posits a belief in something transcendent. And this is by the end of her life, where she comes to a theory of vitalist materialism. And this is where I can get very boring, so I'll be very quick. But it's the idea that everything in the world is made up of matter, and some of those types of matter direct themselves, which obviously puts you in direct contradiction with Christian theology, where, especially in the 17th century, the belief that God directs everything, which was her initial problem with atomism, and which is why her atomist poems were perhaps so attacked, and other people hadn't gone in for that type of atomism, particularly not in English at the period. But by the end of her life, she comes to an uneasy ground where she will write works of vitalist materialism, which almost seem to contradict God. And she, when she does write about God, she genders God as a female creative force rather than as a Christian God at all. But at the same time, she'll write a preface saying, don't worry, I do believe in God. You don't have to hate me because of that. So very bizarre. There's a tension in her works. But it becomes quite clear she doesn't believe in the traditional Christian God of the period, nor a traditional Christian God at all. And she continually throughout her life, from her very earliest work of poetry through to her later work, writes where she's always talking about doubt of an after being, that being either heaven or hell, doubt that anything would exist after her. But then she does write in the 1660s a poem where she talks about how if her poems aren't beloved in this age, if they don't in this age take, the line goes, then maybe another age will appreciate them more. And so for her, her poetry and her books become the only things she is certain of living after her because she doesn't necessarily believe in Christian heaven. And she's always talking about how much she wants fame. At one point, she says, all I desire is glorious fame, which is a brilliant line. But I think it's because for her, fame is not necessarily the degree of adulation and love it's being remembered so it's really interesting and it definitely is non-traditional christian theology and fame amongst whom in particular who is she writing for she 
did believe she was writing for an academic audience. She arranged for copies of her books to be sent to leading philosophers of the day at universities across Europe. Culture at the time was not just nationalistic. Things could definitely circulate across. She wasn't writing in Latin, but some of her books were translated into Latin. And she also arranged for copies of her book to be sent to the Bodleian and to Cambridge and to individual colleges as well. So a huge number of Oxford and Cambridge colleges. Most college libraries have a Margaret Cavendish book, which is brilliant. And there's an Excel spreadsheet you can find on the internet, which tells you where they all are. So they still exist there. But she did think that was the kind of fame she wanted, was to be read by university men, school men, and to be loved by them. So maybe that makes the pain of not being loved by laymen and readers easier. I'm not sure it necessarily did, because although her copies were sent to Oxford and Cambridge colleges, there's no guarantee they were read. She did receive long letters of praise written in Latin from like, the men at Oxford and Cambridge, but I think she was too clever to take them at face value. You explained that Margaret was preternaturally modern. What do you mean by this? And do you think this explains why... In life and in the centuries since she died, she has been traduced and criticised. Does her work push the boundaries of each new age that reads it? I think it definitely does. So I think in her own period, she was pushing at the boundaries of what was acceptable from a religious, from a scientific standpoint, and also from a gender standpoint. I mean, she was writing incredibly radical feminist texts. If you do read some of her plays, they are really pushing the boat out. She does also write some very early works which posited theories of homosexual desire and love. So obviously that wasn't necessarily a new thing. A lot of Shakespeare's plays involve cross-dressing and all of the titillation that implies. But Margaret Cavendish's play, The Convent of Pleasure, does posit the possibility of a lesbian relationship which isn't necessarily staged for titillation because Margaret Cavendish's plays were not written to be staged. They were written during the Civil War and she writes a preface being like, I know these won't be performed. So she's not writing it for erotic titillation so much as exploring the idea that women could love each other as men is the line in the play. So she's pushing at all of these things which seem a bit bizarre. And I think maybe people will disagree with the way that I've used terms like feminism and lesbianism, for example, or cross-dressing. And a lot of her characters are always pushing at the boundaries of their gender as well in a way which feels quite modern. And I think part of that is her preternatural modernity, and which is why maybe hopefully this is the age which can really appreciate her and read her for what she is. But we maybe don't need to put her into a shoebox and say she's just modern. She reflects so many things about the 17th century as well. She is a woman of her time. But I think afterwards, people have mostly parroted the criticisms which were levelled at her in the 17th century and have often not looked beyond those. So people continually say, for example, that her philosophy isn't worth reading. And that really, really annoys me because if you read, for example, any famous philosopher from the 17th century in his 17th century editions, that would feel hard and inaccessible and not worth reading because it feels so much a part of that age. If you read Thomas Hobbes, for example, on Ebo, early English books online, the scans, it's very hard to read properly. And that's for a long time all people had of Margaret Cavendish because she wasn't printed in modern editions. So I think so much of the way she's been criticised, even quite recently, is probably to do with the fact that she has lacked being appreciated for so many centuries. But that doesn't mean we should read her uncritically. I think we should read her critically and to appreciate and to think about, but not necessarily to just sweep under a rug and call her a mad eccentric. Having read her more than 21 published works, this may be an impossible question, but are there one or two themes or plots or ideas that particularly stay with you? Definitely. So the thing she continually returns to is the idea of a group of women retreating from men and retreating from the rest of the world and dedicating themselves not just to intellectual pursuits, which happens in a couple of plays and in uh, The Blazing World, but dedicating themselves to a life with each other 
which doesn't depend on men at all. The Convent of Pleasure is her best example of this. It's an absolutely amazing feminist utopian world where they have silk sheets and flowers and lovely, brilliant descriptions of how they're going to furnish their lives just through their love of each other and without any men around them. So that's an idea which recurs the whole way through from the blazing world right through to her earliest stuff. And the other thing I think is a kind of capacity of mind. She is always able to think about things in so many different ways. She will move between a genre from natural philosophy through to plays so quickly that you won't even know really what happens. Her earliest works of philosophy are written in poetry. So I think it's that kind of mutability and change, which feels very, very 17th century, but also incredibly modern and is incredibly stimulating, if not moderately dizzying to read. You've made an important decision with the title of your book in moving away from describing her as a mad eccentric or using the terms of abuse against her. You called your book Pure Wit, which is one of Margaret's loving husband's descriptions of her. And in the early modern world, wit was a prized attribute, but it's an extremely complex one to define. So I wonder how you would describe Margaret's wit and why you've called it pure. Yeah, I think that's such a good question. So you're right. So wit is not necessarily how we would describe it now as a kind of quick humour. It's a more all-encompassing idea about your intelligence and the brain and all of these capacities. And I think it's the same idea. I think at one point I describe her as a latter-day Renaissance woman. And I think that's probably what I'd go for, the idea of your ability to turn your hand to so many different things. And he calls her pure wit. He lords her pure wit in a poem which he writes just before in the preface to The Blazing World. And I think that is probably the work where it is most on display as a kind of confidence and ability to switch between genres. She's writing scientific philosophy and what is a proto-novel. So just a huge capacity and breadth and depth of thinking. Well, thank you so much for introducing us to this woman of capacious wit uh, and indeed introduced by another. Thank you very much indeed. And it's been really great to get a sense of her. So if we were to send people out to read her, they're going to be able to get hold of The Blazing World. Anything else they might be able to grab? Yeah, so you're able, there's a Penguin edition, which is absolutely brilliant, which has The Blazing World in it. And it also has a couple of her other prose romances, which is kind of a term for a prose fiction from the 17th century, which are really brilliant and are all about women coming up against adversity, which those are also brilliant. And then I think it's the Broad Street editions. There are a couple of editions of her plays. And then if not, libraries do have some like hefty academic editions, which are always well worth reading with great glossaries. Well, thank you. And of course, they must pick up a copy of your book, which is out this month called Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher Esther Arnott, my producer Rob Weinberg, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please, do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.